Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants Inn Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. Welcome to our latest episode of Plod. I'm Daniel Burke and I'm delighted to be joined for the first time by Mark Harris QC from Sergeants in Chambers. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, And it's great to actually be doing this in person during lockdown. We've been doing these recordings over Skype, so it's great to be back in Chambers and and, uh, doing these face-to-face. Now, honesty and integrity are traits which underpin the professions and, and, of course, the police. Professionals know that acts of dishonesty will almost always result in being barred from their profession by their regulator. And uh, this is particularly so with professions, or disbarred, I should say, this is particularly so with professions within the uh, legal and justice sectors. Ms Matthews was a newly qualified solicitor She was just three weeks into her job when she was reported to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority for covering up the loss of case papers. She was struck off the roll. She was fined £10,000. But the decision to strike her off was met with an outcry by the legal profession. Uh, A number of lawyers became involved and took on the case pro bono, and uh, one of those is Mark, who's with us today. So, Mark, what was the background to this case? Well... Dan, you're right to say that Claire was a a newly qualified solicitor. She was admitted to the role in September 2017. And the position that she took up with, funnily enough, the SRA's own solicitors was a position she took up in April 2018. Now, within a month, she was asked to draft a strikeout application overnight on a case that, again, ironically involved allegations against the SRA in respect of its data protection obligations. And she'd booked the next day off to move home. It wasn't an easy time for her. And so she was given the papers in a locked briefcase, headed home on a lengthy commute on the train, fell asleep, awoke at her station, and jumped off the train without the briefcase. And concerted efforts were made by her and her family to locate the missing briefcase over the bank holiday and a sick day that followed. And it was alleged that on a return to work a week later, she had a conversation with a colleague and sent an email to her supervisor that were both said to have been misleading as to the situation with the briefcase. She was also accused of failing to notify her employer of a data breach sufficiently swiftly in compliance with its policies. And that that really is the background to the allegations. And those were the the charges against her as well? They were, yes. As usual in regulatory proceedings, there were the factual allegations and then complemented by contentions that those um, facts were in breach of particular principles that apply to the profession. In this case, to act with integrity and to maintain public trust in the profession. So I was obviously mortified by what she'd done and and no doubt um, terrified, and this followed. Was she represented, though, in the hearing before the SRA? No, she wasn't represented at the final hearing. And, of course, this was a more serious case, I ought to have said, than just breaches of the principles. There was the additional complementary allegation that the facts were dishonest, which makes it more surprising, perhaps, that she wasn't represented. Um, She'd been sacked by that stage by the solicitors following their internal disciplinary process, and and she was struggling to make ends meet. So the cost of solicitors 
and counsel or counsel was was completely prohibitive to her mm -hmm. in those circumstances. And it's a fundamental problem, isn't it, of, that you see in regulated professions. Some are insured, some have a pot of rainy day funds, but it's particularly difficult for those younger professionals and anyone earning a modest wage in a, in a regulated profession. Or may, or may find themselves out of work, as in Absolutely. this case, or in, in uh, low-paid interim employment. Yeah. So she ended up unrepresented before the uh, SDT. Yeah. Now, it, it took her over a week to come clean uh, to her boss about the loss. She was tearful. She did ultimately admit it. And as I say, clearly mortified by the loss of the papers. Is there any insight into the culture she was working in at the time or her mental condition? Well, the, the original SDT determination is light on the issue of work culture. Although toxic work environments have been the subject of discussion in a lot of key authorities recently, as you know. But, but, but as to her mental health, well, the, the tribunal accepted that Claire had a, a history of experiencing periods of anxiety and stress and depression. Um, but they made the rather cynical observation, not once, but twice in the ruling, that she had not presented, and I quote, any formal evidence of her mental state relating to her discovery of the loss and to her actions in the days which followed. And it concluded then in those circumstances that there was no evidence which gave any indication that her mental state had been of a degree that would have been such to cause her to be unaware of the facts or incapable or distinguishing between truth and falsity, honesty and, and dishonesty. Um, it, it's difficult because, in fact, before the tribunal um, was evidence that as recently as January of that year, at her previous employer, Claire had been signed off work by occupational health for stress and anxiety. And it was her own evidence that she had a history of both of those uh, afflictions and evidence from her sister uh, that was put before the tribunal. Um, her sister being so worried about her state of mind at the time this loss was discovered um, that she hid her balcony door key. I've always thought those were red flags, if, if not flags flying in a stiff breeze, certainly flags hoisted up the flagpole of, of particular mental health fragility that the tribunal should have looked at. And had she have been represented, no doubt, experienced regulatory lawyers would have uh, recommended that that evidence was obtained and placed before the, the SDT. The SDT decided that her actions in concealing the loss of the briefcase had been, and quote, uh, deliberate and calculated, and uh, in reality represented a course of conduct involving dishonesty, which persisted for a week. They found that the harm caused was high, the dishonesty was an aggravating feature, and you've explained what she was charged with, and that includes a duty to act with integrity and to behave in a way that maintains the trust the public places in the profession. Mm. Was it really such a surprise that she was um, struck off as a, uh, on the face of this? Well, I think when you look at the tribunal's findings, because the findings were of dishonesty, then when you look at the indicative sanctions guidance, um, it's, it's not a surprise necessarily. Yeah. But then you have to lay that against a much wider context, both in terms of the facts themselves, and of course they were denied and some of the content of the conversations was challenged, um, but also against the issue of her personal mitigation and the mental health impact upon what it was she was found to, to have done ultimately. Now, she did say she'd left the papers at home and she did maintain that for a period. Before we, we look at that, how do the courts actually define integrity? Well, um, honesty and integrity are, are closely linked, but they're different concepts. 
in particular, you don't have to be dishonest necessarily to lack integrity. Mm. There's a financial case called Hoodless and the Financial Services Authority from 2003, which sought to place a definition on integrity as being something that connotes moral soundness, rectitude and steady adherence to an ethical code, which is I think something that's been adopted more recently is adherence to the ethical standards of one's own profession. Um, so it's a more nebulous concept, the Court of Appeals said, in a case called Wingate against the SRA, than, than honesty. Less easy to define, but shorthand to express the highest standards which society expects from professional persons and which the professions expect from their members. And of course that is underpinned by the notion in regulatory proceedings that sanctions are not supposed to be punitive. It's all about looking after the, the protection of the public, but particularly yes. when you're dealing with lawyers and, and other people uh, in those sorts of professions, the, the public confidence in the profession and what it stands for. There were three cases in 2018 uh, involving lawyers who were not initially struck off for dishonesty, but were on appeal by the Solicitor's Regulation Authority to the High Court. What I found interesting in those cases was the development of exceptional circumstances principles. Could you explain to our listeners what these are? So in what instances will exceptional circumstances be likely to make a difference to the outcome? Yes, well, it's, it's not that easy in the sense that Mr Justice Flo in those cases, I think you're talking about the SRA against James and McGregor and Taylor, yes. um, d- didn't go so far as to define exceptional circumstances. But all three of those cases involve dishonesty in a workplace environment and a suggestion of poor mental health as a result of toxic working conditions. But Flo, Mr Justice Flo really agreed with um, the SRA in the appeals against the suspension orders as opposed to strike-off mm. uh, orders, that, that really those factors, the, the personal mitigation of mental health issues, toxic work environment, and that sort of thing, were trumped by uh, what he called the nature, scope and extent of the culpability and dishonesty, whether it was momentary or over a period of time. And so the critical questions when you're looking to see whether or not something exceptional can be established, it is really done by reference to, to, to things like the nature of the dishonesty, the extent of it, the degree of culpability on the shoulders of the person who's alleged to have been found to have been dishonest. And then you can balance the answers to those questions uh, with things like personal mitigation, health issues and, and working conditions. But of course, it's often been said that those things take less precedence and less um, have less weight Uh, when you're looking at the impact upon the profession, its reputation, than the actual act of dishonesty in the first instance. So how would mental health impact on on this? Well, again, that's quite difficult because uh, although Mr Justice Flo said it wasn't a trump card, um, he he went on to say, without more, um, mental health issues themselves can't amount to exceptional circumstances. So so we as lawyers, of course, um, looking at the very words that are used, jump on those words, without more, which rather suggests that with a little bit more, (laughs) mental health issues might amount to, or at least contribute to, um, the exceptionality of circumstances. I think what the High Court was a bit cautious in trying to do was was not to open the door wide to cases of dishonesty in professions like lawyers, for police officers, for other professions where trust is a very important factor. The High Court was conscious of not opening the door wide to cases like that being dealt with by anything other than the default position, unless they really are um, exceptional. And I think you know, insofar as exceptional circumstances are concerned, it's really a question of looking at the 
if I can call it, the offence itself in a, in, a, in, a, in a descriptive sense. What's gone wrong and the circumstances really that, that need to be exceptional have to be circumstances that are applicable directly to the acts and the conduct themselves as opposed to a, a person's personal mitigation. But, but there are circumstances, I think, where mental health can impact, mental health fragility in particular, can impact upon the, the, the conduct itself but because there are some circumstances where, where mental health fragility, I, I suppose, is going to make people less able to be aware of the, the conduct that they're committing, less able to appreciate that it's a conduct that may be disapproved of by others. And you've got that fine line, that sort of twilight zone between somebody being incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong, incapable of understanding what it is they're doing or being aware of what they're doing. And then by contrast completely to just it being personal mitigation. You've got that sort of twilight zone where, where mental health affliction may well impact upon the culpability itself of the person who's committed the dishonest conduct or the allegedly dishonest conduct. And when it comes to something like that, I think that's where the lines blur a little bit. And that's where the without more that Mr Justice Flo allowed us to, to, to bite upon may come into play. It's... Um Fair to say in, in this case, as you, as you said, uh, Miss Matthews was suffering from a serious decline in mental health. Her sister had taken the uh, balcony keys off her, probably underlines quite how serious it was. And it's difficult really to pinpoint where mental health issues come from. There can be a, a number of contributing factors, but the pressure she was under in the lead up to the incident and, and the days between the incident and the admission to her boss must have been a major contributor. This wasn't evidenced properly before the SDT, but no. did it have any effect on the SDT in their judgment? How, how did they deal with it? Well, not, not very well, some may say. Uh, the, the, the reality was that there was some evidence of mental health fragility. There were plenty of uh, red flags that, that arguably should have alerted the the SRA is the presenting regulatory body and the SDT, the tribunal itself, to the issue of potential um, mental health affliction here that may have impacted upon uh, her conduct. And although the evidence was limited, that the flags were there, and unfortunately, the SDT recognised some of the pre-existing mental health issues in very general terms and, mm. and used those phrases like depression and anxiety some may say, in a layperson's definition of them as opposed to a, a, a clinical definition of them. And, and ultimately, having decided that there was no formal evidence put before it uh, as to impactful mental health fragility, it, it ignored um, really those red flags. Uh, and one of the things that came out of the case and in our discussions subsequently in trying to, to see if we could challenge this decision was whether or not there was a responsibility on the part of a tribunal or a regulator or both to step in and say, well, hold on, when there are red flags of mental health fragility that, that could impact upon the issues we have to decide, particularly when there's an unrepresented yeah. registrant or unrepresented person, that that person shouldn't have to bear the responsibility on their own shoulders, particularly when people are very defensive naturally in talking about their, their mental health fragility, or they may have no particular understanding of how deep that affliction goes and how impactful it might be. And when you think about the fact that these hearings are supposed to be, and everybody as a regulator seems to, to suggest that they're all compatible with human rights and that they bend over backwards to, to ensure that people's human rights are, are properly uh, adhered to and properly um, endorsed, you wonder whether or not when you think about the Equality Act, 
of 2010 uh, and whether or not somebody's mental health fragility affects them to such an extent that it impacts upon their day-to-day -day lives, which fits within the definition of disability for the purposes of Section 6. You wonder in those circumstances whether or not a failure by a tribunal a failure by a regulator to spot those red flags and take the responsibility to do something about it might be discriminatory. Mm. And further, perhaps talking the talk but not walking the walk. Um, let's look at dishonesty. Mm. Uh, one of my favourite cases, and perhaps another pod podcast we can do, is mm. uh, Ivy and Genting Casinos, mm. such a fun case. But this case redefined the test for dishonesty and it changed it from a subjective test to an objective test. Mm. Applying that here, I mean, would a mental health issue have to be so acute to mean that it wouldn't apply unless the defendants could not appreciate the difference between honest and dishonest conduct? Well, again, this is a, a, a blurred lines error, I think. I think the effect of Ivy is that it doesn't really matter whether a defendant can or can't appreciate the difference between, defendant or a registrant can or can't appreciate the difference between honest and dishonest conduct. I mean, Hoffman said in that case, well, there's no requirement that a defendant must appreciate that what he's done is by the objective standards that are to be applied, dishonest. It's all about the objective, reasonable member of the public judging the person by the standards that would apply to the public. Having said that, that there is, there's plenty of authority that has explored the position and, and, and embraced the position that a failure to, to contemplate the difference between honest and dishonest conduct may be impactful when you look at the subjective element that still exists with Ivy, and that is the knowledge or belief as to the facts that the person whose conduct was scrutinising um, held. And, and to that extent, mental health fragility and the capacity of somebody to understand what they're doing or, or to partially understand what they're doing and the rights and wrongs of it may well be part of that fact-finding exercise that's the first stage of the Ivy test before you then apply the objective standards of honesty and dishonesty to those facts as you find the registrant or the defendant appreciated them to be. Well, here we had a, a young solicitor really under, under a lot of pressure who made, I'm sure we can all agree, a serious error of judgment. But the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal, as you've said, more or less ignored the issues of mental health, perhaps lip service. And she didn't have the ability to afford legal representation, which could have assisted her to navigate those issues. Where are we up to now with it? As far as the case now is concerned, well, the appeal was lodged at the High Court and ultimately the decisions of the tribunal on the facts found against Claire Matthews on her strike-off and on costs were all quashed. Uh, and her appeal was successful, not, not because we argued it in court, but, but unusually by the agreement of both parties uh, under the 52A practice direction. And what happened was we provided uh, medical evidence that, had it been available at the time of the hearing, could and should have been taken into consideration yeah. by the tribunal in determining the facts themselves, um, not just sanction, but the facts themselves, the issue of dishonesty, and if ultimately they had still decided in a way that was adverse uh, to Claire, um, the issues of sanction or, or cost. I ought to say because it, it's part of the order that I need to make this clear. The, the SRA didn't concede any ground of appeal advanced and the court didn't determine the merits of them. The appeal was successful by way of agreement, mm -hmm. but, but it's undoubtedly right that it was a, a victory for, for Claire herself and for good sense. So what was the outcome of that hearing? 
Well, the outcome of the, 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 the successful appeal was really this, that by consent, that the whole case is going to be reheard before a new panel uh, at which um, the, the medical evidence that we've obtained in relation to, to Claire's position will be presented, uh, the case relitigated, and of course, this time, she'll be represented. Now, similar rules uh, for our police audience listening to this will, of course, apply mm. to police officers. Yeah, well, police dishonesty, uh, whether it's operational or, or otherwise, is viewed with the same level of seriousness yeah. as it is for barristers and solicitors. I mean, as you'll know, with your work in, in other regulated professions, the default position for dishonesty is usually strike off, but in practice, there's a bit of wriggle room. But for lawyers, um, for police officers, for senior military, I'm representing a senior military man before the major, before the army board in a major administrative action at the moment. It's the same principles for, for him too. It's very difficult to circumvent the expectation that dishonesty will attract the most serious sanction, honesty and integrity being fundamental tenets of all of those professions. The um, Police Conduct Regulations 2020, when they list in Schedule 2 the standards of professional behaviour, um, list as the very first standard in a non-alphabetised list, honesty and integrity, which mm -hmm. goes to show how important it's regarded. Uh, and the College of Policing's guidance on outcomes, with reference to the important purpose of disciplinary, the disciplinary process as being maintaining public confidence and the reputation of the policing profession as a whole, regard, make it plain that they regard as, as especially serious uh, offences of dishonesty, given the fundamental requirements for any police officer are to be honest and to, to have um, integrity. And, and although th there is some suggestion in the, in, in the guidance that some off-duty dishonesty may have limited relevance to the profession, how it's viewed, um, that the real emphasis is um, considering whether or not any dishonesty that's proven um, has the propensity to affect the reputation uh, and or, and public confidence, really, in the police service. And it's a specific aggravating factor, isn't it, that concealing wrongdoing itself, so the cover-up after the yes. event, um, it is, uh, it is something that's very much taken into consideration. So uh, it seems to me that for police officers, just as it is for senior military, just as it is for lawyers, um, solicitors and barristers, you know, this is really the, the, the very worst kind of allocation that can be made against you, given that the... The expected position, the default position, unless something exceptional can be shown, it is um, the end of your career. Now, for police, lawyers, and indeed senior military officers, we, we all deal with very difficult cases, and mm. some of them can be heartbreaking, haunting, under a lot of pressure. The attitude of regulators and courts to mental health issues can sometimes seem to be a bit stuck in the past. And you've mentioned how red flags in this case seem to have been ignored. As a society, we're recognising it and speaking with greater understanding and less shame about mental health. Do you think this case is a, a watershed moment? Well, I hope so. I hope so. I think regulators are, are, are becoming more open to recognising the impact, the potential impact of mental health fragility on someone's conduct. Um, I mean, the College of Policing's outcomes identify as a, as a specific mitigating factor, uh, mental ill health or disability or medical conditions or stress, which may have affected a police officer's ability to cope with circumstances in question. And, and insofar as Claire's case is concerned, the SRA has, has taken a, a position in which 
Now it's publicly engaged, for example, with the Junior Lawyers Division of the Law Society when, when the JLD raised issues over its approach to Claire's case. And it's published in August of last year, has the SRA, new guidance that specifically addresses the approach to be taken to cases in which ill health is raised as an issue. It speaks of taking a, a, a consistent and fair and proportionate approach when health issues are raised. So I hope, I hope that, that, that because of the debate about this case and the publicity that, that Claire has courageously lived through, mm-hmm. I hope that it, it does become a watershed moment because at least regulators and at least the public and certainly the legal profession who've backed her to, to the hilt, if I may say so, with much gratitude, are now debating the issue and with debate may come change. Wonderful. Well, Mark, thank you so much for talking us through that and for joining us for your first, I hope, of uh, uh, many podcasts with us. And um, it was uh, very interesting to hear from you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you too. Thank you. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.